the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and Ph.D. with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. We have been scouring the news, looking at the issues. Uh, My co-host Larry Dersham and I were following the election results as well as the issues that people were voting on. We would have rather have seen a little higher turnout than we saw, but it was really something to behold regarding how similar most of us are in being able to identify all of the same issues that matter, the kitchen table issues, so to speak. Um, and talking to us about one of these issues this evening for our first half is a very special guest. Larry, who do we have on the line? Yes, Wendy. Bill Wells is the mayor of the city of El Cajon, California, which is a city of more than 100,000 people right here in our state. Before becoming mayor, he earned a doctorate in clinical psychology and started his own health care services organization. He started his political career in 2004 when he became council member in El Cajon, and eventually he became mayor. Uh, but today, or tonight, we're going to be talking about the homelessness issue, which he is very familiar with and an expert on. So welcome to the program, Mayor Wells. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, um, Bill, I know that you and I have talked before about your your amazing background, and I'm always at, at, at odds. I can't decide whether to talk about your musical career. I know you play a number of different instruments um, and different styles, everything from jazz to country. But I have to say, you know, your doctorate in clinical psychology, I mean, wow. I, I know you, you're in very good in politics and, and really on top of all of the issues. Um, do you practice clinical psychology? Is that something that even if you don't have a full-time practice that you feel like you use the skills you learned in sort of the work that you do in politics? Yeah, you know, I spent uh, 25 years working in emergency rooms doing psychiatric evaluations uh, in the inner city ER. So, yeah, I, I certainly have, have done my share in the trenches working with, uh, with sick people that, that need help. Yes, you have. Right. Now, Bill, I saw an incredible presentation you made recently on the topic of homelessness here in California. So with your background, as we've mentioned before, as a mayor of a mid-sized city here in California and a person that holds a doctorate in clinical psychology, I think you're the perfect, perfect person to ask, why are we seeing such an epidemic of homelessness on our streets in California? Well, you know, first off, you're, you're right. There is more homeless people in California than by far any other state in the union. The only place that comes close to it is New York, and which is interesting because a lot of people will say, well, the only reason we have a lot of 
homeless folks in California is because of the weather. But New York doesn't have nice weather. So I think the, the commonality here is not the weather, it's the liberal politics. And the truth is that, that the legislature in California has decided to embrace homelessness, and they've tried to do, basically encourage homelessness by a series of laws that makes it very hard for cities to do anything about preventing homelessness, and at the same time making it very easy and encouraging for people to stay on the streets and not to seek the kind of treatment that they need. And it's, it's just kind of a perfect storm of, of bad policy decisions that has made the homeless uh, problem explode in California. You know, Bill, we talk a lot about homelessness. I mean, it's an issue on everybody's mind. Everybody cares about it and would like to see um, a, a, a feasible solution. And that really seems to be what we often talk about. I mean, there's a, there's a homeless problem in Hawaii and we make the same, you know, conclusions. Oh, it's because of the weather. But you bring up a really good point. Um, about New York. I mean, if we were to, if you were given the background you've done and the research you've done on this issue, if you were to think about, you know, the best ways that we could combat that in a big city with the resources we have, I mean, how do we go about doing that? And if, if we can come up with some sort of a bipartisan solution, I mean, wouldn't, every, wouldn't everybody sign on to it? Well, first off, the first thing you have to do is kind of come to some kind of consensus about what the real problem is. You know, if you talk to people in the homeless industrial complex, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but there are a lot of people that make their living from getting grants and, and from perpetuating homelessness. And so if you talk to people in the homeless community, um, they're going to tell you that the reason people are homeless is because the rent's too high and that the economy's tough and people are down on their walk and they've lost their job or they got sick or and that's just not the truth. If you if you talk to any police officer, firefighter, emergency room doc, they're going to tell you the same thing. And homelessness is always related to drug and alcohol abuse and, you know, to some degree, mental health issues. But I think those things usually go hand in hand. Uh, one of the things I found out when I was working in ERs is that there's plenty of beds available. If, if you want to get off the street, if you go into an ER and say, hey, I want to get off the streets, I, I've been homeless, we can get you a bed in an hour. That's not a problem. But the problem is to accept that bed, you have to usually be willing to follow some rules. And those real rules usually involve getting off drugs and alcohol. And nobody wants to do that. And we figured that every person on the street has been uh, approached about a dozen times and offered a chance to get off the street, but they don't want to get off the street because they they like this lifestyle of living on the streets, spending all their money, all their SSI money, and all the money they get from panhandling on drugs and alcohol and having no accountability. And the people that are perpetuating homelessness, they don't want to hear that because they feel like that's somehow blaming the victim and um, giving people a reason to have negative feelings about homeless people because, you know, being a drug addict is so kind of a preventable thing. It's a choice. And so that's the, the first thing I would say is that we got to get, we got to get past all these politics about homelessness and just really look at what the real problem is. Cause if we can't look at what the real problem is, there's no way we can come to a solution. Yeah. I've, would you say bill that uh, 99% of the homeless problem is related to the drugs and the alcohol and sometimes to both addictions happening? I, w I would say that, you know, um, I mean, there, there, there are no really good statistics. If you, <clears throat> if you look at the statistics that you'll 
get off the internet from the, the homeless advocates, they're going to say maybe a third of the people have drug and alcohol problems. But that's just not the reality that people that work in the field see. When I was uh, doing psychiatric evaluations, I saw a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless people brought to the hospital on 72-hour holds. And I would do a drug and alcohol screening on every single one of them. And in the high 90s, they, they would be positive for drug and alcohol abuse. And I think that everybody has the same uh, experience that works in, in clinical medicine. But, right. um, you know, the, the rest of the world does not want to believe that. Certainly our legislator doesn't want to believe that. They, they get very offended when you, when you bring those kind of things up. Right. Now, now, what kind of drugs are we seeing? Is it, is it mainly a certain type of drug that these people are on besides alcohol? I mean, you know, yeah, it depends on the, you know, on the, on the decade. Um, for the past 15, 20 years, it's been crystal meth. That is that is the main thing we see. You know, when you see people out there screaming at lampposts and, and walking into the middle of the street completely disheveled and disorganized, not being able to take care of themselves, you can pretty much bet that they've been on crystal meth because it really does scramble the brain. And it makes people sick to the point where they probably won't come. A lot of them will never come back, which leads us to a new problem. And it's like, what what do we do? If we were to finally get serious about treating homelessness, you know, we couldn't just get people off drugs. We couldn't put them into a rehab facility, and they would not all just get better. A lot of them are permanently damaged. So we have to um, start looking at the possibility of long-term treatment for these folks, which is going to be super expensive and take a lot of commitment. You know, Bill, one of the things we worry about um, in the short term is that while they're out on the street, whether it's because there's a mental illness issue or they're, they're using drugs or they just have no place to live, um, we worry about them being victimized. You know, we, oh, we sure. worry about how do we protect them when they're in that vulnerable condition? And that would even be more so yeah. if somebody was under the influence. And I'm just wondering if you know of, you know, some of the best practices in ensuring that while we are thinking of ways to tackle the homelessness <laughs> problem, we're also able to protect the homeless. Well, I mean, one of the things we can do is what we what we shouldn't do, and that's this housing first kind of idea, this very liberal idea of like all we have to do is build housing and give these folks the key to an apartment and they're going to be fine. Um, we know that in places like L.A. and San Francisco, about a third of the people that we give those keys to, they die within, within a year of being in housing first because they're not stopping victimizing each other. They're not stopping using drugs. They're not stopping sex trafficking. They're stopping assaulting each other and raping each other. And, and so they've got to have rules. They've, they've, they've got to have some kind of law and a responsibility that comes along with getting housing. Um, and, you know, again, this is kind of antithetical to the modern idea that the only way to treat homelessness is to just basically take our hands off the wheel and say, hey, you know, any kind of lifestyle that you want to live is viable. And who are we to say how you should live? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of disagree with that. It's, it's like raising children. You know, we all know that what happens if you start raising kids without any rules whatsoever. They, they stay up till 4 o'clock in the morning, play video games, and eat chocolate all night. And, uh, wow. No, I appreciate that. You know, we're almost to the end of our show, but I have to say, you know, we, we could talk to you forever about this issue because it's, I mean, it's right here in our own backyard. It's yes. like very near and dear to our hearts. We want to make sure 
um, that everybody in the community is safe and that we do everything we can to get these people the help that they need. And like you said, you've raised some really interesting issues for our listeners to think about, um, including whether or not housing alone can ever be the answer. It's also interesting you say there's bed space available, so you've given us a lot to talk about. We want to thank you for joining the show today, Bill. Uh, anytime. Uh, I'm cl- okay. glad to come on t- and talk to you. You're off for hours. Thanks. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. You have been listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. My co-host, Larry Dersham, and I will be right back. So don't touch that dial. We'll be back for a second half of Today with Dr. Wendy in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. Larry Dersham and I have looked through some of the most interesting cases of the week to try to figure out what can we really flesh out during the second half because there's so much to choose from always. But one of the cases that is very near and dear to the hearts of, of many people that are in sports that are, have, have had, you know, people that have been um, exploited in some sense regarding sexual assault. I mean, there's just so many different varieties, I hate to say it, of ways in which this comes up, um, is the case of Larry Nasser. Now, as the, the team doctor, the USA Olympics team doctor also taught um, at a university, also was the doctor there. And Simone Biles, a gold medalist, as well as some of her peers have sued the FBI for $1 billion, with a B, dollars. And this lawsuit is really about accountability for not stepping in sooner and doing something, removing Dr. Nasser from his post to spare more victims from being amassed, which of course is what happened. I mean, think about all the patients a doctor sees in, in a year. Um, so this lawsuit, Larry, is... Not really a lawsuit yet. It's more of a request from the FBI who has, you know, a certain amount of time as a federal agency to respond. Uh, and I just, it just makes you wonder, is this something that we think is going to be a settlement? Because remember that some of the victims have settled uh, with Larry Nassar, who, by the way, pled guilty and is looking at decades in prison. But being a sexual assault victim often requires a lifetime of therapy. It's not something somebody just sort of gets over in six months. But is this the kind of case that is trial worthy or would we expect this would also, like some of the other cases that have been brought, be a settlement? I think it's going to end up as being a settlement, Wendy. It's kind of interesting, going back to the prison sentence of Larry Nasser. he is serving up to 175 years in prison for molesting these gymnasts. And uh, so he's in jail, but I guess the, the allegations of this lawsuit is the FBI knew about these way back, I think, in 2015, and they kind of didn't do anything about it, and they could have stopped it earlier. Uh, one of the gymnasts, her name is Michaela Maroney, she's an Olympic gold medalist, she said it's clear that the only path to justice and healing is through the legal process. Now, $1 billion is a lot of money, and I'm just wondering, as a taxpayer, I want these girls to be compensated for sure, but there are some issues to consider. 
apparently the two FBI agents that knew about this alleged molestation and did and failed to act on it, they've made a determination that they will not be fired from their job. Uh, would that be a better remedy to fire them and they would be deprived of, for example, the, the retirement as opposed to putting, uh, you know, on the taxpayers, a billion dollar plus bill to be distributed Uh, So I just think they definitely need to be compensated. But is that the right remedy? And this is interesting, too, Remedy. uh, Wendy, what do you think about this? So policemen are FBI agents. They fail to act. Now, could that be taken down to a level if you get a call, a 911 call, and they're a little bit slower? And I'm kind of jumping over to the police scenario of of responding. And they get there a little bit late. Could they be sued? So where would this end? Uh, if you allow this type of litigation to go forward. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't allow it. You probably should. But there are so many issues with this. What do you think, Wendy? Well, you know, part of the accountability aspect of this particular case is asking the FBI, what did they know and when did they know it? It, Remember the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting that resulted in a settlement because there was evidence that came forward that this actually was known that this was going to happen. Now, of course, you know, they're Everything is subject to interpretation. How do you ever know? Many perpetrators say what they're going to do before they do it. That's not true when it comes to sexual assault. But if we were to look for parallels in certain types of cases where the FBI was sued uh, successfully or did enter into a settlement, then you bring up the factor of the number. Now, we all know that uh, dollar figures change. So would be probably hard pressed to find anybody that would argue against compensation, uh, at least to the extent to attempt to make sexual assault victims whole to the extent that we can. We never can, but at least that would be helpful. So maybe the billion dollars somebody would probably have to to think through what does that represent? How is it broken down? You know, sometimes we're faced with what at, at first glance seems like these astronomical sums of money. But then when they're broken down and we get, we see a spreadsheet, for those of you who can read those spreadsheets, we kind of understand where the victims and their lawyers and their legal teams and their families are coming from in arriving at this kind of a figure. And I just wonder if that may be the kind of place that we're, we're headed. Um, but at the same time, I know there's plenty of other things in the news. It's just, you know, it's it's one of those cases that seems to continue to reappear due to the realities of what we talk about every day is, do we expect people that are in a position to know that there's a risk to mitigate that risk? And what happens if they don't? Right. And apparently they're collecting uh, or they're they're filing this as uh, collective administrative claims are being filed under the Federal Tort Claims Act, which allows people who have been harmed by negligent or wrongful actions of the federal government to seek compensation. And uh, so it it will be interesting. Apparently, the head of the FBI, Christopher Wray, has admitted that, yeah, his department was negligent and not following up on this and things could have been done in a better way. So that's kind of an admission already that there's uh, a little bit of uh, guilt on the part of the FBI. And that will probably be brought into the negotiations uh, should it move forward. Well, not only will it be brought into the negotiations, but you have to believe that statement was intentional. You know, it's not like, oh, I slipped up and said too much. You know, before we 
before people testify at congressional hearings, I mean, they think through what they're going to say and the reasons why. And, you know, accountability, transparency, those are buzzwords that the public likes to hear. I mean, everybody wants to be able to have faith in our institutions when we want, you know, all federal agencies, um, all Supreme Court justices, everybody in a position of power to act with independence and integrity. And part of the process when you have mistakes that are made, when maybe information wasn't relayed or transmitted in, in a timely fashion, well, then that necessarily is going to impact how fast that uh, law enforcement agencies, for example, are going to act. They can only act upon information that they have. And that's why the accountability question continues to be front and center in a case like this. As you mentioned, something even acknowledged by FBI Director Ray. Right. And uh, one of the people bringing this case is, of course, that amazing athlete. Uh, her last name is Biles, and she's widely considered to be the greatest gymnast of all time. And she said the entire system enabled the abuse. And they're also blaming the U.S. Olympics Committee, the USA Gymnastics, the FBI, and the Department of Justice. So they're really saying there's a lot of people that are responsible for allowing this to happen and go forward over that period of time to, but to damage these girls. all of them be defendants? That is part of the analysis. Because remember the FBI case I told you about, the, the one that ended up um, stemming from Florida's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, that shooting? Yes. So the failures in the FBI there, that actually led to $127.5 million being awarded to the families of those killed or injured. But part of the reason for that is it was the FBI that allegedly received a tip five weeks before those 17 people were killed. Right. Um, but that was never forwarded to the South Florida office. So those are the kinds of things that we look at, we collectively, when we talk about lawsuits in terms of why are these lawsuits directed at certain agencies and not others? Because it probably has a lot to do with who is the repository of information upon which they could have acted. Right. Hey, I wanted to bring up a little bit of a commentary here and I want to go back to a famous quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light. It was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope. It was a winter of despair. Do you know who said that, Wendy? Pretty famous guy. Charles Dickens very famous uh, author. So I'm calling this, uh, that was from The Tale of Two Cities. Well, I'm calling this segment The Tale of Two Ideologies. Free enterprise system, like we have here in the U.S., versus communism, like they have in China. And I'm using the example of a country, uh, the country of Venezuela, to show how the U.S. is morphing into communism. Now, oil-rich Venezuela was once the most prosperous country in Latin America. It had very high standard of living. However, all that began to change when Hugo Chavez took power during his 14-year rule from 1999 to 2013 in Venezuela. He followed a strategy of introducing socialism gradually. The first stage entailed obtaining total control of the institutions. And during his first four years, he did that by changing the Constitution. I don't know if we ever, ever heard rumblings of that, changing our Constitution, packing the Supreme Court. That's what he did down in Venezuela, installing Soviet-style political commissars in army units, which is a Communist Party member who's assigned to teach 
party principles to the military. Uh, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that with the CRT training. And so he just moved and he wanted to change and he did change the electoral system by uh, uh, tweaking the and manipulating the voter roll. So I just think we have to be very aware. And there's so many red flags of what's happening. And I don't have time to cover it this week, but I'm going to save that to next week. Yeah, you know, Larry, you always have um, very, uh, very passionate commentary on a lot of these issues. I was going to say Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were. <laughs> <laughs> Tip of my tongue. But, you know, part of the reason that we uh, we do delve into some of these areas is, as you point out, um, provocative, controversial topics are, you know, very close to, to people's hearts and minds when it comes to things like, you know, keeping democracy safe, keeping us safe, the the kinds of issues that actually do have some bipartisan appeal when we talk about them. You know, one thing we haven't talked about tonight is the January 6th hearings that are going on televised. But um, we're going to cue that up to hopefully maybe revisit that next week. So you've been listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a blessed weekend and we'll be seeing you next Saturday night. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.